0: Welcome back to another Beach Cop Detectives interview with the writers, cast, and crew of Terriers. This time out, we're talking to Kelly Wheeler, who was assistant to Ted Griffin and Sean Ryan, as well as being a fixture in the writers' room and on the production side. She's credited as the writer on the episode Pimp Daddy, but as you'll hear, Kelly was deeply involved with Terriers on all levels throughout. Kelly has worked on a number of shows, including another heartbreaking, brilliant-but-canceled fan favorite, Firefly, In this interview, we talk about the production side of things, the joy of working with everyone on Terriers, and an underserved market for specifically trained wiener dogs. So sit back and enjoy this interview with Kelly Wheeler, Assistant and Writer on Terriers. The first interview I did was with Sean Ryan, and I lost it. Ugh. I haven't lost any others yet, so it seems oh, like we've man. got our solution all set. Yeah, I'm gonna have to call Sean and redo it.
1: I mean, everybody knows like this kind of thing happens; it always does. Yeah. But I Being in your position, I can totally imagine just being like, oh, "Come yeah. on!" And like,
0: <laughs> like, especially the first one, I was like, "Come on!" Uh, <laughs> I was super happy to get your email. You were, you were one of the first people to email you back. And I was like, oh, she's as enthusiastic about this as I am. This is going to be awesome.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to have somebody to talk to about it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> when you first responded to my email about terriers, you mentioned that it was one of two projects where you ugly cry, where they wouldn't let you do anymore. And yeah. first, I want to say, I'm right there with you. Mm-hmm. Uh, second, mm-hmm. uh, I have to assume, was the other one Firefly?
1: It was. Yeah. It okay. Was.
0: Right there with you on that as well. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's really interesting. I I mean the common denominator might be to Maneer. They were years apart, but there was a very similar feeling on both sides of, you know, everybody got along, people liked each other, they hung out and also, there was this feeling like we were doing something and making something cool and special and great, which, you know, there's a lot of cynical folks who <laughs> work in television and who are just like, oh, yeah, I'm on this show and that show. But those two shows really, really were special in no way.
0: Well, I've been struck when I'm talking to everyone that everyone who's worked a lot of TV has mentioned Terrors as being, if not their favorite, at least one of their favorite shows that they worked on.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, part of it, I, I mean, it's wonderful to shoot in San Diego. You know, you can get around that town from this side to that side in 30 minutes, which, you know, if you try and shoot in L.A., it's a different story. But there's something about Being close to Los Angeles, but still being a little bit on location that, you know, makes people kind of come together a little bit like we were a little bit of the circus. I also think it was a trickle down. Michael Raymond James and Donald Lowe liked each other and they liked everybody on the set. And, you know, it was infectious.
0: You went from production assistant to director's assistant to writer's assistant to writer on your time in mm-hmm. terms. I have all that right? That's so right. Yeah. It seems like you saw a little bit of everything. Can you tell me a bit about what, was, what you remember about how the show was put together?
1: You know, when we were first looking at locations or where we were going to shoot the show, there was an idea that it might be closer to Santa Barbara, Carpinteria. I think it's called. But there was more of an infrastructure in San Diego. They've shot shows there, Veronica Mars, The X-List, etc. So that seemed to have a very similar vibe to what Ted was going for. And in the end, I think most people were like, oh, that was a much better choice. And pulling everybody together and figuring out who got to go to San Diego, where we were getting talent from and crew, that was a little bit of an extra hurdle. But once it got up and running... It was, it was pretty smooth. It was pretty smooth. Other than that courier, God bless it. But that thing <laughs> broke down all the time. And it didn't have any air conditioning. So, oh. ugh.
0: <laughs> I, I want to ask about San Diego because Ocean Beach is just such a great setting. I rewatched Pimp Daddy last night and I saw Ho Dads. Yes. And I recognized...
1: Delicious. Have you eaten there? Delicious. I haven't.
0: I've been to San Diego Con so many years, and then I stopped going, and then I heard about Ho Dads, and I yeah. just missed my shot. Yeah. But I recognize the San Diego Convention Center in the background of uh, Jason and Gretchen's party, which yes. I thought was just a great... I mean, I'm, I'm a comics nerd to the bone. I own a comic store, so that sure. was just like... It, it popped to me. But San Diego has such a sense of place. Can you talk a bit about some of the locations and like location scouting and, and uh, the benefits of having that as a location?
1: The biggest benefit is right away, you don't you don't have to plump up the character that is this town that they live in because those are just the people that live there. You know, keep Ocean Beach weird is a slogan they already have. And so it just automatically, you're like, these guys choose to live here. They choose to work here. They're very protective of it. And now I know a little bit about them. I think looking for... Gretchen slash Hank's house was a bit of a challenge to find something that would speak to the life they had. Then maybe she'd redone a little bit of it, and then he took it over and what that would look like. But overall, I'd say that We tried to find places and locations and restaurants that really told the story so we didn't have to. The fact that the old townhouse cafe was sort of HQ for them was great. And those people could not have been more charming and more willing to work with us and excited to have us there. And that in itself carried over to... Hank and Britt, because they felt like these were their people.
0: Were there any sets or was it all location?
1: No, there were sets. The exterior of Hank Gretchen's house was always a location, but eventually we did build that interior. The same with Maggie's office. The police station was actually like a defunct San Diego municipal building of some sort that we made into our police station. And almost everything else was sort of on the go. You know, we just we found it because that's what you you want to see. You want to see them out in the world.
0: Yeah. Well, that's one thing that I notice is those those beautiful shots where they're driving on the freeway or they're driving down the street. And just the sense of place is so strong and the lighting, just the natural lighting is really so good.
1: Curtis Ware, our GP, was amazing, was really (laughs) curmudgeony and um, (laughs) gruff, but like had the biggest heart and just did some really, really beautiful, amazing work on that show.
0: I also keep noticing as we're going through the podcast and doing rewatches, there's all these great performances, not just from the leads, of course, but just little bits of of casting, like the people who they ran into during Ring-a-Ding-Ding in particular when they're running down leads. Every single one of those people was very memorable in those instant, like short moments they had. Can you talk a little bit about the casting? I know that you were there for some of the casting.
1: I think we were just really lucky to have amazing casting directors. And it wasn't necessarily like, oh, here's somebody who's willing to do your show, as much as it was we have this great material and the actors came. Johnny Sneed, for instance, playing, you know, Professor Owen, mm-hmm. I thought he did a great job. He's the perfect guy. Maybe you recognize him, you know, from Volkswagen commercials <laughs> or whatever, but you know, he's been in a lot of stuff and for him to be Sorry, spoiler alert. To be the person who falls in bed with Katie was unexpected. And it's not because, like, oh, yeah, I do recognize that actor. That guy's going to be important so much. I, I feel like those kind of actors really blended in with our show. Mm-hmm. And in my episode particularly, Cameron Monaghan who played Cody Grice, you know, has had a great career after being on (laughs) Terriers. And uh, interestingly enough, we also had Noel Fisher, who played Adam Fisher, the dude who, you know, had the amnesia in Mm -hmm. the episode written by Jen Seidel. And the two of them went on to play lovers on Shameless. (laughs) So (laughs) I think it all started with us.
0: Pimp Daddy also had Michaela, played by DJ Pierce, and such a great character, and at ease with her sexual identity, and funny and strong. Did you know who was playing her when you wrote it?
1: No, not at all. We we didn't know. And that was one of the associates in casting sort of offered this wonderful person as, a, as an option. She hadn't done a lot. She won, you know, RuPaul's Drag Race. Mm-hmm. That was sort of her claim to fame. But she gave the best performance i mean when she read for the part it it felt real it felt lived in it felt legitimate and so you know the fact that she didn't have like you know a page full of credits actually kind of worked for her i think in that instance because she wasn't trying to play a character she was just trying to be in that moment
0: right well she was just so genuine and and Instantly clicked with Britt and had the same sort of chemistry that that Hank had developed with him in a different way, and I thought that was just fantastic.
1: That's what I love about Britt is he can feel very much like in this arrested development state that he is still a kid in so many ways, but yet, you know, or maybe because of... He's just very accepting in that way. You know, when they have their conversation about he had a kid who was born gay or he, he that wouldn't face him. And I just i like the two of them together a lot because it was nice to see him like Britt's a good pal. Britt's a good wingman, no matter who he's partnering up with in some ways. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. And also it let him get out from under the shadow of Hank. And he was sort of he was the veteran. He was the investigator on that one. It was an interesting dynamic right. switch.
1: Yeah, we were not worried, but it was one of those episodes where the show lived and thrived with the two of them together. Those scenes were magic. You know, they would just pop right off the page. So when you start to think like, okay, so how do we put them on their own storylines? It gets you get a little nervous. You know, are they going to be compelling? Are you going to be, you know, wanting to watch? I mean, it made sense for, you know, what was going on with the characters at the time. And we wanted to be true to that. But at the same time, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to start mucking up the pot. You know what I mean?
0: Sure. And then you flip the script in the next episode Asunder, where Hank and Britt are separated and Hank's doing his own thing and Britt's doing his own thing, which worked out great.
1: Yeah. But I can true. understand
0: where you'd be nervous.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. And but what's great about that is the division of the two of them, you're so caught up in Hank with the squatters and what's happening with them. And then, you know, Brett's storyline is so emotionally charged with Katie that you kind of forget that they're not together.
0: One of the things in these two episodes that struck me is the raw emotional hurt of the fights that go on because in the next episode we'll have Britt and Katie and that, that gets really raw and hurtful. But Hank and Gretchen at the end, mm-hmm. when, when they're sort of going at each other, it's just the meanest, like people saying things to hurt each other. Like that is how people fight when they're, when they're fighting for real. And it was so real and so effective.
1: It's interesting to watch those, those scenes sort of ramp up. You know, and then get to that place at at the end, and it is a true testament to those characters knowing and their history of you know when you have been married to somebody for so long, you know where their buttons are, mm-hmm. you know how hard to push, and it you really got to see what an argument between these two people when they were married would have been like, and then for Hank to just lash out so meanly at the end of you know that last scene of like it. It's probably a good thing we didn't have children like that. That's a pretty ugly, rough thing to say. Yeah, and that was
0: just that's just an emotional body blow to throw on your way out. That was brutal,
1: brutal, 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 brutal. But, you know, those scenes, you know, we we shot them all in the same day. The ones where he went to visit Gretchen in her office. And Donald is such an amazing actor because I forget what he, he was just telling me a story just you know, something funny he read or something and he was just mid conversation, mid huge gestures, big, like laughing and just, you know, full of this story. And then it was like, we're gonna need you. And he's still finishing his story as he's, you know, walking away from me, opening sort of the door to the set to this this office. And Kim is Kim is waiting and he like tells me the last part, kind of closes the door, ready, set, rolling speed, and goes right into it. He just really has such an ability and such a skill. It's remarkable. I've rarely ever seen that because you would think he would need to really be in that place. But no, he just finds it in himself.
0: You had said that uh, your your good penmanship earned you the (laughs) job of board girl. Right. And and I'd like to know what what that meant, what that entailed in the writer's room, because I'd like to know what the writer's room was like.
1: That room was fabulous and you better you better have your pop culture ready and also your musical theater (laughs) references and everything in between but you know we had we had a writer's assistant ned who was wonderful and capable but he was taking notes on a computer and it was all of the writers self-declared they had terrible penmanship and so they didn't want to write the beats on the board as things were being worked out I was in and out of the room all the time, taking notes for TED on things or just being there because I knew I was going to have to shuffle someone in or out. And lucky for me, God bless my mom, (laughs) who was like, you better have nice people want to read what you're writing. (laughs) I had nice penmanship, so I got to write the beats on the board and it's a little like baseball when there's a, you know, the superstition of, you know, you put your sock on left and then you write one or whatever it is. If it's working for you, then you just keep doing it. And I think writer's rooms can sometimes be that same way. So it's like, Oh, we're putting stuff up on the board. Called the girl with the handwriting. <laughs> and it was great because I had a front row seat to watch these stories being broken. To really watch these writers talk through things, reason through things, dismiss things, come back to things, and that process was, was fascinating, and I was so grateful to be in the room and to watch those writers work.
0: You wrote some blogs on the, for the FX site, for the Terrier's FX site. And yeah. you, were, you were kind of sending those along. And in one of them, you mentioned a discussion of the missing ring and a Prince Albert.
1: That's right. And
0: <laughs> I was wondering if you had uh, memories of any of the weirder or funnier dis- discussions that took place in the writer's room, whether they made it to the show or not.
1: Well, you know, there was, there was the how we're going to kill Lindis that discussion. You know, it started out very, it could be very serious, a la, you know, Michael Clayton and mm-hmm. perhaps the bad guy's. Or our guys are somehow syringe, you know, inject them between the toes to him choking on a chicken bone. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, we went with sort of the no BS of hit, being hit by a car, mm-hmm. and that worked best. But it was always things like that. It was, for instance, there was an episode where I think it was dog and pony, where Britt and Katie get a dog, and the first version of it. There was talk that, you know, it was gonna be a Pomeranian and <laughs> there was concern that maybe a Pomeranian didn't seem like a dog the Brit would have. So then we moved off to the idea that it would be a Dachshund and you know, wiener dogs are always funny. So as they were working through the ideas of what this wiener dog and I can't believe I'm telling the story, this wiener dog and how it would pester them, uh, there was an implication that perhaps the dog would start humping Brit's leg. <laughs> Yeah. Here's where the story gets great in that in in movie and television, you can do just about anything. You want to make it snow? Sure. Fine. To find a wiener dog that will <laughs> hump on cue is impossible. And I just want to encourage any listeners out there, if you have a wiener dog that will, in fact, hump on cue, you should come to Los Angeles because <laughs> there is an open market for you. And and subsequently, with, there was conversations about how long it would take to train the wiener dog to hump. <laughs> Three months. Three months. That's how long. So eventually, we went back to the idea of the pomeranian, and kind of came away from that that it, the actual humping had to be seen on screen. Right. But those conversations of you know opening up with like, well, what kind of a dog can we get to hump on cue? <laughs> And the fact that it was dog related, that's that's a perfect terrier story.
0: You call out Hank in the elevator with the man in the tan suit as one of your favorite scenes. And yeah. it's, it's one of mine, too. It's one of those that sticks with me.
1: When he punches him, it's so good. And you're so with Hank. Yeah. And that's the perfect thing to do in that moment. And it just feels like Hank makes a lot of bad choices. And maybe that wasn't a smart choice, but it felt like the right choice those small moments for me are what make this show amazing what makes it stand out from the crowd and i just can't believe they won't let us make any more of them <laughs> i just
0: can't believe it <laughs> so that's one of the things i wanted to ask you because you obviously get terrors on the same level that i do where i just look at it and it, as i watched the ratings sink i got more and more depressed and i kept yeah. just holding i was like john Landgraf loves this show he's going to let green light no matter what the ratings are and you know yeah. i was sure that it was going to get a second season and I still sort of look at it and I'm, I, I can't figure out what it is about I love about the show because it's just everything about it. What was it about Terriers that really just makes it sing for us?
1: I think the storytelling felt classic. I think I've heard you say it's, you know, beach noir, which mm-hmm. is a great and perfect description of it. But at the same time, you know, the friendships felt organic. The relationships and the way people act felt real and not in a way that was put on that we were trying to be grounded you know you always hear shows that's very grounded sure. but This show actually just, it just kind of wanted to be who it was. You know, it just, these are these guys, and we happened to be lucky enough to have two leads that, you know, really liked each other, Mm -hmm. and uh, a crew that supported them and liked them as well. (laughs) And the storytelling was great. And, you know, we tried to find interesting ways into stories and out of stories, and wasn't always clean, and that's life. And I think sometimes it's nice to hang out with some friends who are like you or that you would know those guys. It's uh am I crying right now? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I'm totally, I'm fine. I'm an adult, I'm a professional lady. (laughs) One of the things
0: that really strikes me about it is that everybody talks with the dialogue and the dialogue is amazing, but they're so quippy and quick, and yet it never feels stilted. It's never like, oh, a writer wrote this. It feels like they're just bantering. How do you bring that to the to the table? How do you write that dialogue, which is both real but is also so snappy that you just don't see it in real life that often?
1: You know, I'd say that's 90%... Ted Griffin. And, you know, it does feel like the dialogue is very snappy and there is a lot of banter. But Ted, who has been someone I've looked up to, I, I like to think of him as a mentor. I don't know if he thinks <laughs> of me as a mentee, but he he once said to me, you have to earn the quip. Your character's have to have conversations that are regular or feel regular so that when those little gems pop up, you laugh the way you would in real life. You know, watching two people spar back, back and forth, back and forth, can be fun for a little bit. But a whole show of it, I think an audience starts to get fatigued. Whereas if you've earned the quip, then it lands. It just lands. And Ted also had sort of a rule that You know, there were no pop culture references from after like 1978 or something. Uh. Why there's like a lot of like, oh, well, my Jane Fonda tapes. You know, I've been using those. Or, you know, sometimes they're even in the pilot when it's like, you don't look so good. Well, sad news, my Pilates instructor died. You could (laughs) have thrown in a bunch of you know, currenty pop culture references, but instead you just go for the timeless one. And I think that also helps it feel real and, you know, not of just a very specific time. It makes it timeless, you know? Sorry, that's not a Sean Ryan plug for his new show, although (laughs) you should watch it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I assume everyone will be turning in to watch Timeless. I know I will. Um, (laughs) Well, we wanted to close out with a tribute to someone who we, we recently lost who worked on Terriers.
1: That's right. Our our second AD, Dan Mulvaney, passed away. And he was just a really good, cool, cool guy. And I guess I just, you know, I want to say his name out loud because he was so important to the show. He was my first friend on the show. And I think he was a lot of people's. So, so we miss him
0: all right well thank you so much for talking to me today i really appreciate it we had talked for another hour or so but i don't know if anybody listened but us so
1: <laughs> well just call me up anytime I will.
0: we'll just talk terriers <laughs> don't make that offer you'd regret it <laughs>
1: okay
0: <laughs> thanks so much
1: thank you
0: Beach Cop Detectives is an independently run podcast co-produced by Randy Lander and Grant Davis from the TV Dudes and part of the Permanent Record Network. Music for this series includes the surf music tracks Happy and Whimsical by Paul Tyane. To hear more of his work, go to soundcloud.com slash Artwork for the show is by Nate Bliss. You can find him at n8bliss-art.tumblr.com. You can like us on Facebook at Beach Cop Detectives and on Twitter at Beach Cop Podcast. You can hear weekly TV commentary by Randy and Grant at thetvdudes.com. Thanks for listening.